welcome to the Queen's Church Sermon Podcast. Our church is being built on two vision statements. Jesus is our passion and love is our mission. We hope this message leads you to Jesus and that next week you'll join us in person to experience God's love through this local church. You can follow us online at qns.church. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Yeah. God deserves it, as we just heard. Wow. How about um, we give a round of applause that God gives people better musical abilities than he gave me? (laughs) Amen. Thank you to our worship team who each week, I mean, I know, I know we all love music. It's a big part of who we are as people. But um, to have theologians who are willing to stand up and preach this message through music is such a powerful thing that we get in the body of Christ. So don't ever underestimate the power of what God can speak to you during the worship time before I start talking. Because the, the word of God is dripping all over those songs. So um, praise him. If you have your Bible, you can open it today to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our sermon series entitled Portrait. And Summer actually has a special gift for you if you do not have a Bible. If you just raise your hand, if you don't have a Bible, we want everyone to have a Bible in their house that they can read. Raise your hand and she'll bring you one. And if too many people raise their hand, she'll go get some more from the back. Don't worry. Um, So if she gives you a Bible and you don't have one at home... Take that one home with you. It's your Bible now. If you do have one, you can just set it on the black table at the back when you leave, um, and we'll use it next week. Matthew chapter 5, and uh, yeah, raise it high. We got one more up here at the front too, Lamont, um, this summer. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of this great collection of Jesus' teachings, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. As, we've continue, uh, as we continue to talk about this, we're going to see something um, that becomes very apparent. I think today is the first Sunday that, that it gets really revealed that these things that Jesus is talking about actually build on one another. Okay, so the point is this. Um, does anyone enjoy uh, orchestra or symphony music? Yeah? You raise your hand. Be proud about your orca- orchestral love. Okay? Now Listen. If you took just one instrument out of that orchestra and set it to the side and said, you play this symphony by yourself, some instruments it would sound okay, right? Like a violinist might be able to play the whole thing and you think, oh, that that must have been written for a violin. But if the oboe starts playing, you know, maybe they only have limited parts. Oh, we have an oboe player I'm about to offend, sorry. Maybe they only have limited parts of the symphony as a part of um, their collection of music. So if that's the case, it's not going to sound that good, right? So what we want to have it in our head is just as a symphony is only as good as the sum of its parts, right? It's, it's best heard with the collection of the orchestra playing it. Just as that is true, so is this sermon and, in bigger context, the entire Word of God. So what, what I want to caution us against, the way that we're preaching this is really slow, right? Kind of verse by ver- verse. But don't forget that this is all to be taken as a whole as well, all right? So when we play this, when we listen and read these words of God, what we're going to see today for the first time, like I said, um, in our four weeks, is that uh, these things really build on one another. So let's read. With that in mind, I do, I do want to read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 5, even though we've already covered the first four, 
Um, we know we had that very encouraging sermon last week, if for those of you who are here, about mourning, right? And we found that a mourning doesn't have to be a bad thing, that we can go into the desert of grief with the promise of the garden of peace. Okay, so uh, let's see how that um, builds into this week's sermon. So Rome, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came close to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. God, your word is true. Write it on our hearts this morning so that we would leave here changed by the truth that your Holy Spirit speaks over us in this moment. Help me to step to the side. Use me as an instrument for your word to speak directly to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's jump right in because you know this is the first time I have to cover two Beatitudes in one sermon. So we're just going to get going if you guys are ready. And uh, if, you, if you came and you have a little uh, section, you can take notes if you were handed that when you came in. Um, if not, let us know. We can get you one of those too. Uh, but if you want to take notes, there's going to be some things on the screen. And these are things that I thought were important that, that jumped out to me as I was studying this. But you might write something down that, that I didn't think was important, and that's fine too. So feel free to use that as your blank canvas. But the first thing that I have on here is that um, this word that we're talking about uh, at the beginning is meek. Blessed are the meek. Quick reminder, blessed means what? Happy. Happy. Or even? Congratulations. congratulations, right? Jesus is saying congratulations to the meek. Happy are the meek. So let's just talk about that word. What are the meek? Well, look at this. The meek... <clears throat> Leverage their strength for the good of others. So that's going to stay on the, on the screen for a little bit to get you a chance to write it down. Uh, and I'll break it down a little. The meek are people who leverage their strength, as this says, for the good of others. Now, what does this mean? There's a common misconception that if someone were to say uh, to you that you are meek, you might take that in, think that is an insult because you might be thinking, since it rhymes, that it sounds like they're calling you Weak, all right? So just let that leave. That is not true. It's not in any way what the word meek means, okay? The word meek means gentle and lowly of spirit. Does that sound like something we just talked about a couple weeks ago? Poor in spirit? So remember, it builds. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. People who have decided that they will empty themselves for the good of what God has given them. And then next he says, blessed are those who mourn. Because we know, listen, if you empty yourself, if you decide to really face who you truly are in your sin, then what's that going to lead you to do? Mourn, right? And grieve this, this sin that, that is in you that's keeping you from God. So you see that their poor in spirit are led to mourning. And when you are mourning, we talked about this last week a little bit. What is your posture usually? Standing like this, strong, tall, proud? that how you grieve? No, what is it? You can say it, Alan. Slumped over, right? Sometimes even on your knees. This is the posture of someone who's mourning. And what Jesus is leading us to is 
That's the posture of a follower of Jesus. Don't get it wrong, though, he says. That doesn't make you weak. Okay? It makes you meek. And someone who is meek is willing to use what they have, the strength that they have been given by God, which we'll get affirmed by in just a minute, so don't lose me yet. But the, the meek are people who leverage this strength for the good of others instead of the good of themselves. Um, I want to take you to Abraham. Okay? You guys may have heard of Abraham. He was an Old Testament prophet, and he was the father of the nation of Israel. Right? Jesus was a Jew, and he came from this nation. He was a son of of Abraham. Father Abraham, as you may have heard when you were younger, had many sons, right? Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. I'm not trying to make an inside joke, but if if you grew up in church, you probably sang that song in children's ministry, right? I think our kids actually sang it at one of their gatherings uh, not too long ago. But yeah, there's this song talking about how the father of Abraham is the father of many sons. And um, But that wasn't the case when he was even 75 years old, when he had this uh, life-changing moment. He still was not a father at 75. But he was given a promise at the age of 75 in a place called Bethel. And after traveling around and amassing a great amount of wealth, and in those days, um, anybody know what wealth looked like in those days? Cattle, that's exactly right. He had a lot of livestock, right? He had a lot of um, servants, just so you guys can see this, my 10-year-old son is in the back doing this. <laughs> he had money, right? He had, he had servants, but he didn't have any children. He was, he was traveling around, and, and, and he ends up back at Bethel, right? So 75, he gets this promise from God that he's going to have children at, at Bethel, and he travels around. Um, he encounters some uh, temptation, and he falls into it, and he sins and lies along the way. You can read that on your own later, Genesis chapter 12. Um, But for today, I want us to to see this this important part about Abraham and his character. There was not enough room for Abraham's livestock and all of his belongings and the people who traveled in his entourage to remain in this place that God was promising (coughs) along with his nephew Lot, whom he loved. And so what happened is in Bethel, it's a hill country, and it looks down over a valley. And to the north, you find a valley that is um, considered the valley, uh, the Jordan Valley. Uh, Lot says it looks like the valley of the Lord, the garden. In other words, he's making reference to the Garden of Eden. It's so lush, it looks like the Garden of Eden. And then to the right is the south. And south facing, let's just say it like this, it didn't look like the Garden of Eden, all right? It was desert, and you could tell it wasn't a good place to take cattle because cattle need need grass to eat, right? Well, Abraham knows there's not enough room for us both. And watch what he does. He stands at that mountaintop with Lot next to him. And God has given Abraham the promise. The covenant is his. The wealth is his. And he says to Lot, anybody know what he says? You choose left or the right. Now, I don't think we need to demonize Lot, but he chose the left. Sometimes he gets demonized like, yeah, you get what, get what came to you because later it doesn't work out that well for him and his wife. Um, but Abraham, with all this strength, okay, all of this um, uh, ability that he had been given by God, these promises of God, decides 
to leverage the good of what God had given him in the Valley of Jordan. That is good. That is his. It's his possession. He says, you know what? I'm going to leverage what, what God has given me for the good of my nephew. He, he, we can assume he probably knew what Lot was going to choose. He said, Lot, you choose. And Lot chose the better land. Abraham was rich, and he recognized that all that he had been given was from whom? From the Lord. Abraham knew he didn't get those things on his own. We know that because of his faithfulness. He understood that it came from God. So when friction occurs, he's not worried about his possessions. Okay, the friction was that um, down in that valley, uh, the herdsmen started to get into fights. That's what brought them to the hill to make this decision. But listen, when friction occurred in Abraham's relationship, he wasn't worried about his possessions, who he knew came from the Lord. What was he worried about? His relationship with his, his, ne- his nephew. He was worried about his relationship with his nephew and the safety of their people. He was so concerned with that that he trusted God by allowing Lot to choose from left to right when it was obvious to everyone which one was better. He had faith, okay, even if Lot chose the Jordan Valley. We know that because of what we read later on. Like I said, you can go study that if you're interested. It's Genesis 12, and just keep reading through about 19. You'll see what happens. Lot chose the Jordan Valley, but God had provided all that Abraham said, all, all that Abraham had already, so he had faith that all of this, we're calling that strength, these, these things, the meek are the one who, who inherit the earth. Okay? These are earthly things that God had given to Abraham, and he recognized that he didn't get them on his own. And so he held them, as my dad would always teach us, he held his possessions instead of holding them like this, which we're tempted to do because they're mine, with a closed fist, he held them in an open hand. And he said, God, these, these were given by you. You take as you please. You need to help someone with, with this car that you have given me. It's a great gift and I love using it, but they can use it. You need, um, you need to give, you want me to give this thing that you have given me, this, this possession, this land, these, um, these material things, these relationships to you. I'm holding them with an open hand. You can take and do as you please. He held them like that and that shows meekness. And the promise of God is that while we think naturally that the strong inherit the possessions of the earth, we'll get more on that later, God is teaching us through Jesus Christ that it is truly the meek who who inherit the earth Uh, because the meek are people who are leveraging their strength for the good of others. And just a quick note, the strength here is not only physical things. You might say, well, I don't have any cattle. So how does this apply to me? You, you can have strength. You can be given gifts that you can't touch, right? Physical, mental, spiritual, emotional strength. It's not just talking about certain types of strength. What Jesus is saying is that uh, meekness, the people who are meek that inherit the earth, are the ones who understand that every breath, down to every breath that they have, is from God. So everything above your breath that which includes your possessions as well as your physical body and the words of your mouth and the power that you have over others, parents, all of these things should be leveraged for the good of others. In our world, those who use their strength for their own upward movement tend to inherit positions of power, right? But 
Jesus says it's different. Um, Danny was talking to me about the sermon earlier this week, and he said, you know, I've taught it like this before, that when, um, if you go into the, to the weight room, which Danny does more than I do, so I'm going to take his word for it. It's, he said, amen. It's, uh, he said, it's easier to lift, right? If, uh, um, it's harder, sorry. It's harder to lift up, right? Did you know that? He said, if I push down, if I'm pushing down, I have a lot more force and ability to push down than if I lift up, right? And that is how our strength is. It is easier for you and I to push people down than it is for us to lift them up. And what God calls us to do through Jesus here in meekness is saying, what I have given you is a task that is not inside of your natural ability, and it's not the easiest thing for you to do. I want you to resist the temptation to push people down and use your power to exert over them, and I want you to reach down and pick them up. It's harder, God. I know it's harder. I didn't call you to an easy task. But God, it's gonna make it's gonna make the work longer for me. We're gonna talk about that in a minute about how meekness is patient. Um, it's okay. It's okay. I've given you all the time that you need. You know, people um, when they die, people say, well, "Well, God took them when when He knew it was time." If you believe that, then being patient about these things is not a big deal because we trust that all the time we spend leveraging our strength to pick others up is time well spent because it's time spent in the will of God. When you are lifting people up, you're in the will of God. When you're pushing people down, you're outside of it. It's not tricky. So we have to ask ourselves, when have I asserted my strength against others or to push others down instead of lifting them up? You might write that question down. It's hard to do um, real introspection in the middle of a sermon, but you could, uh, you could think about that later. Is there, are there people I'm pushing down that I need to be lifting up? Maybe you have um, a job and you're coming to the end of your time as a manager or as a director or, or as whatever position you are, and there's someone around you who is uh, just coming up. It's a good opportunity for you to practice this, right? Because you could think, well, I have a few years left at this job. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get them up to my level too soon because they might take my job before I'm ready to go, Right? But Jesus says, no, no, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who look at the corporate ladder from the top or from wherever they are, and they look down and they say, who's under me on the corporate ladder? And the world says to do what? Keep climbing or even, or even push them down. But God says, blessed are those who are meek, who look down that ladder and they say, hey, come up here with me. And guess what happens when you practice meekness? It's like a muscle. All these things, you get stronger at them. And eventually you might even be able to say this to that person. Here, come up here, and let me help you up. Let me help you up over me. You see, these muscles, we can get stronger. We can get better at them. And while just you may just need to focus today on the thought, like, I just need to stop pushing people down and start picking them up. But maybe you're at the point in your spiritual walk where God's challenging you to do more than that. And he's saying, you know, you're picking people up quite a bit. You're serving all over the place. What I want you to do is I want you to stop picking people up only to where you feel like you're even with them. And I want you to start taking them to the next level. I want you to start equipping them to do more than you ever did in your ministry or at your job. You need to start throwing people up (laughs) instead of just picking them up. 
And again, I think Danny will probably agree that that's harder to do, throw people up and then push them down. Um, but when, the point is this. Uh, so the second point is this. Uh, meekness is a patient endeavor. All right, so let's get into this real quick. When we assert ourselves, we are generally trying to make something happen on whose timeline? Our own timeline. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is for me. You don't have to answer and um, indict yourself. The reason I want things done on my timeline, I'll be real honest with you right now, is because generally my timeline is better than your timeline. <laughs> that's what I tell myself anyway, right? Would you disagree that that's what you tell yourself? Doesn't matter what it is. It's time to leave the house with the family. And Lindsay says, let's leave at 1045. Lindsay, what do I say? Let's leave at 1040. And whose timeline do I think is better? Mine, always, all right? But meekness is not something that we can do on our own timeline, and we can learn something about patience through the practice of meekness. A lot of these things um, that God teaches us about who a Christian is, uh, they facilitate and they help one another. You think, I'm not a very patient person. I really struggle with patience. And I've prayed, God, give me patience. God, give me patience. And I just can't have patience. It might be because you don't have a patience problem. You have a meekness problem. It might not be that you're bad at patience. You just might be bad at letting others' timelines win. And if you're on a different timeline, Maybe your impatience soon looks like just waiting around because you're already ready, which, which may give you more time to, you know, like step away and do the dishes while the family's getting ready. I don't know what it's like for you, but that, I'm just talking about for me. <laughs> Meekness is a patient endeavor, and they can teach you about one another. Meekness and patience, they work together. Let's see it right here. Um, I'll be honest with you, when, I, when God uh, brought me to this passage as I was studying this, I kind of felt like it was a stretch. And, and when you're preaching, you don't want to stretch, right? You want it to be super crystal clear. Um, so I'm trusting him. I'll, I'll tell you right now, I'm trusting him as I preach this to you that what was a stretch for me just might really hit home for you, okay? So he, here's, a, here's an example of how, um, like I said, I think God thinks but well, he's still yet to convince me that this is a really good picture of meekness and patience. Acts chapter 16, and it will be on the screen for you. I'm gonna read a little chunk, okay? So check this out. What happened was Paul and Silas got put in prison. That's all the backstory I'm gonna give you. You can get the rest of it from the beginning of the chapter if you want later. But they're in prison, and this is what happens. First night in prison. They didn't have to wait long. It says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were sleeping soundly. Nope, that's not what it says. I was just making sure you guys were with me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. They are so holy. They were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so strong that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Hallelujah! We're free! When the jailer woke up... Interesting, right? Jailer was sleeping, but... What were Paul and Silas doing? That's going to become important in a minute. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. What happened here is he, he feared what his superiors would do to him more than what his sword would do to him. That's the point. 
But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here, or we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights, probably not believing him. Turn the lights on. And he rushed in, and he was trembling with fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. That prophecy right there has already been spoken over you. Like I said, the musicians, they're not just good, they're theologians. Sons and daughters shall be saved in this place, in this place. You remember that song earlier? Right here. Your whole household shall be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set, them, set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire family and they, that they had believed in God. Paul and Silas had to be more patient than I would have in order for this to happen. Do you agree with that statement I just said? My timeline would have said, God provided that earthquake so that I could be saved. <laughs> we would have all done that. I, I, I mean, I'm not going to put that on you because there are, there are believers in this room that are like Paul and Silas. So I, I'm, I'm going to take that back. We not all have done that. God has given some of us the discernment to know, right? But listen, a lot of us would have bolted because we have a timeline. And that timeline says, I got let early and it was obviously God. But... Because of Paul and Silas's patience, Paul and Silas were not the only ones saved. Amen? Amen. In fact, the jailer got saved. The jailer's household all got saved. And the rest of the people in prison got saved. Sometimes our lack of meekness, in other words, we have this moment of strength. God, give me this, God gave me this incredible opportunity to save myself and to save Silas and maybe some more. That's strength, that's power he has given us sometimes. When we choose to use that for ourselves instead of waiting on God's timeline, sometimes we are robbing others of salvation. What a warning this is to us. Meekness is a patient endeavor. When we are given strength from God, we must be sober-minded in the way that we use it. And listen, the only, I don't believe it, like, I think Paul, if he were here in Silas, sometimes we hero them, right? I don't think he would say anything about him or Silas's ability. This is what I believe he would say, something like this. I found patience in that moment because I was in the midst of worship. The jailer was sleeping. He was freaked out when everything went down. Paul and Silas were worshiping God. And in that moment, they were given power from the Holy Spirit to wait. And I want to ask you, 
in this moment, as you are worshiping God, what is God giving you the power to wait on right now? Something that he is calling you to be patient with. Maybe for the salvation of others. Maybe for your own good and salvation. God does it for both. This is just a clear example. God convinced me, by the way. I get it. I get it more now than when I wrote the sermon, that this is a patient endeavor they stepped out on. Um, Waiting on the Lord is a purposeful patience. It's a practice that when we trust, that it's a practice that we trust that while we're waiting on him, he is moving mountains for his good purposes. While they sat waiting for the jailer to come in and convince him not to commit suicide, while they waited, the clock was ticking. Guards are coming. Someone's gonna put us back in jail. These are the thoughts in their head. These are the thoughts in yours and my head when we're waiting on the Lord. This is my only chance. I won't have another shot at this. I better move quick. These are the worries that pop into our head. All those worries, all those time ticks, you know what God was doing? He was over at that jailer's house and he was whispering by the power of his spirit into the household's ear and he was saying, get ready because I am coming to save you. God was over busy turning death into life while we sometimes are sitting around worrying, wondering if it's our time to move. So don't forget that your patience does not mean God is doing nothing. God's not standing still while you're being patient. We're called to be still. But it doesn't end with be still in the Psalms where that is recorded. It says, be still and know what? You know it. Say it out loud. That I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And him being God means I'm moving the mountains. You just stand there and worship. You don't move the mountains. I do. But you worship me. Okay, we've got to move on. Uh, Oh, two questions. What mountains does God need to move around you right now? What mountains are over here that God needs to move? Pray that he will move those. And the second one is the scary question. Is your lack of patience preventing a move of God in your life? Consider that. Is my lack of patience preventing a move of God in my life? Let's keep going. When we put others first, which is what meekness is calling us to do, kingdoms of the earth bow to Jesus. When Paul and Silas finished saving uh, or being a part of his salvation, they baptized this man and his whole household. Now, uh, that clock was ticking. Well, it finally arrived. They didn't get off scot-free yet. They came in. Where are they all? Oh, they're all at the jailer's house. Wait, they didn't run away? No, they saved me, and my whole household is saved. And they said, oh, uh, this isn't going to look good for us. So what are we going to do? I know what we can do. Just let them away quietly. Let them go away. So this is where it's clear that meekness is not about weakness. It's about knowing when and whom to use the strength for, because you know what happens? Paul and Silas stand up to the people who just threw them in prison. The, the, um, not the guards, the magistrates, the court, the, the judges, and the police. When they're saying, okay, you guys can go quietly because we don't want this to look bad for us. This is what meekness looks like. 
Paul knew the timing, and he stood up and said, um, we were unlawfully put into prison. We're Roman citizens. You are not going to let us go away quietly. You can take us back to the center of town, and you can let everyone know what happened. And do you know? That's exactly what happened. So the point is, our patience and this meekness thing is God working, and one of the things that God is really good at is making the thing that he created submit to him. He created this world, and the earth bows to God. And when we are meek and we put others first, the kingdoms of the earth bow to Jesus the king, and guess what? You are in Jesus. The way that you inherit the earth doesn't always look like riches and glory like we want. But it does always look like the earth bowing to Jesus. And when Jesus is your king, Jesus says, come, stand with me. You are my fellow heir. Everything that's mine is yours. Amen. Amen. And the kingdoms, when you put others first, the kingdoms of the earth bow to Jesus. We're going to move on and uh, skip some stuff. Um, let's go to uh, the second beatitude. This is how it, um, this is how it kind of uh, shoots forward. So the first one is blessed are the meek. Happy are you. Now, after hearing all that, well, wouldn't you like it if someone said, congratulations, you are meek. Doesn't that sound like a, like a congratulatory manner now? Yes, I am. Because I know that I, I'm, I'm learning to be patient. I'm, I'm leveraging my good for others. And I know that when I do that, kingdoms of the earth that look like enemies to me, they bow. They bow to King Jesus, and he, and he loves me, so I'm good. Okay, so congratulations. You're meek. Um, you are. When you are in Christ Jesus, you are meek. Own it. Accept it. Receive it, and then live in it. Follow the Holy Spirit. He will lead you to meekness. The second one is this. This is where it turns, okay? This is the Beatitudes. Um, uh, the, the GPS is turning left right here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's about me. Blessed are those who mourn. That's about me. I'm still, I'm still experiencing stuff in my soul. Blessed are those who meek, it, who are meek. It's still about me. I need to be facing others correctly. And now here's where we turn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, when we focus on those first three Beatitudes and, and we are completely empty, don't you feel like someone who could be a doormat really easily? If you're poor in spirit, you're mourning all the time and you're meek. Be honest with yourself. You, I, I, know you, I know you love me, most of you in the room, so you're like, I believe that Pastor Larry is treating us right. Like he, he is preaching this and, and I believe that this is the word of God. But at the end of the day, deep down inside, isn't something telling you that like, if I'm that all the way, 100% in, people can just trample on me sometimes. Right? Why? Why do you feel that way? It's because this is all about emptying yourself. All these first three Beatitudes are just about emptying, emptying, emptying. Like Miss uh, Annie said, that posture is just slumped almost. Although Paul didn't seem very slumped, right, when he stood in front of those guards and said, you're not going to do this in secret. But <clears throat> there is an element of emptiness and slumping. But what happens when you're empty? Emptying yourself produces a hunger for something else. Emptying yourself produces a hunger for something else. I want to know what the hungriest that you've ever been is. Anybody ever gone more than one full day, 24 hours without food? More than one day, raise your hand. Anybody ever gone more than two days without food? 
Anybody ever gone more than four days without food? Seven days? Eight? Ten? Ten days without food. That's hungrier than I've ever been. I do not know that type of hunger. Right? I have a friend who lives in the neighborhood. I'm not going to call that person out because she would be embarrassed. But she's having to just eat. Um, she can't eat solid foods right now because of an operation. And so she is very hungry all the time. She's eating smoothies all day long every day. And every time I see her, I say, how are you? She says, I'm hungry, but you knew that already. <laughs> Listen, when we empty ourselves, we get hungry. And Jesus is masterful in the way that he teaches this concept. I mean, the, the, the literary, uh, as a public speaker, I can just appreciate so much how he crafted this sermon. How he emptied people so much in, in like 14 words. You know how many words I've said in this sermon? Thou hundreds, if not thousands. And Jesus is like on word 27, and people are so empty, they don't even know what to do with themselves. And he knows it. And so he says then, Congratulations on being empty. Now, happy are you who hunger and thirst. And they're going, yeah, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty because it just emptied me of everything that I have. And he says, after righteousness. When poverty of spirit and mourning produce meekness in, our, in us, we find ourselves hungry for something else. And let me tell you something quickly. God is not the only one with a remedy for your hunger. You do not have a war against flesh and blood. In other words, Mark and I are not in a battle if I am uh, feeling tempted or um, to sin by something he's doing or, or I'm causing him anger or, or either way. He and I are not in a battle, but we would be led to believe that we are, that these things are physical with one another. But what's happening is a spiritual battle in a realm unseen. And in this spiritual realm, there are others who might entice you to be hungry. You know what you're hungry for? Yeah, you did a good job. You know, uh, this is the accuser. You did such a good job releasing yourself of all those things. You know what you're really hungry for now? Love. Someone who will just love you like no one's ever loved you. You know, you should just go love that person. I know you got into trouble with that person last time, but just go love that person. Just give yourself to them 100%. All that emptiness, hunger for them. You know what that produces? That's, that's what we call lust, not love. You're lusting after that person to fill a hole in your life that nothing else will fill. It might go somewhere else, though. Oh, you're so meek. You're so empty. Look at you did all that. You're mourning. You did all these things. You're so poor in spirit. You know what you really want now? Target. I was going to say a new TV, but see, that's the difference between my wife and I. You want a Target run? You want to go fill yourself with some, some material possessions because they're going to make you smile. You put on that new jacket. You're going to feel so good. You're going to get compliments when you walk outside the house, which reminds me, you know what else you need to fill yourself with? Other people's praise and compliments. You need to fill yourself with these things, okay? So there are other there are other uh, spiritual forces that are trying to remind you that there's other things that can fill you besides God. And Jesus says, in those moments, step into the understanding that when you empty yourself, it produces a hunger for something else. And what God wants is that you hunger for righteousness. This word is very large, and we could do a whole sermon about it, but I'm not going to, I promise. But let's, let's, I'll just read this real quick, okay? The Old Testament talks about eating and drinking 
the things of God often. This is not a weird uh, metaphor, in other words, for these listeners. So what I mean is it's, it, it talks about eating of the things of God and drinking of the things of God often. It's not literal food and drink, but spiritual food and drink. And um, like Miss Jean says in her video we watched a couple weeks ago, um, the, the, word, the word, she said it better than this, I can't remember, but the word of God is bread, and when I go to church, I get to eat, right? That's what she, what she means is I have this spiritual food that I get, and I can, I can be filled with that. The Old Testament talks about that. So Jesus here is talking about the craving, not the eating. It's a little bit different than it's usually talked about in the Old Testament. There are some passages like the, a deer panting after water. You've heard that before, maybe. And it's this idea that you want God so much, you're like a deer that ran a long way to get to a stream, and you're just panting, God, fill me with you. Okay, so it is there, but Jesus is talking about the craving. And what righteousness is, in its most simplest form, is completion. Righteousness is completion. It's everything being brought to fullness, to its fullness in God. So it includes uh, being made new, being made right and whole. It includes holiness, but also includes this word you'll be familiar with called justice, right? Uh, It's made complete when 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 that gavel is dropped, if everything that happened was fair and justice is served, there is a fullness and a completeness. That's why people who have had their um, loved ones uh, murdered, when, when, they, when, the, when the gavel finally hits and that person is declared guilty, there is a sense of what? Just relief. I've never been in that position before, but I can imagine you feel relief. And I hear them in interviews say that they're just glad that this person, has, they, they finally know fully what happened because there is a, a, an idea that completion is found in justice doesn't make their loved one come back, but justice still needs to happen. Okay, so righteousness and justice are used interchangeably throughout the Old and New Testament as well. Um, so what Jesus is talking about is us craving and hungering that God would make everything right. Right with me, right with my neighbor, watch out, right with my enemy, right between me and my enemy, and yes, even the larger, more difficult things to grasp with, like right in our city, right in our country, even right in our world, and you think, you went too big. There's no way that can happen. It's not gonna happen. But God says, I promise that it will, and I want you to hunger and thirst for it. Because watch this. You know what happens when you're hungry and thirsty? You go find the food. That's why Jesus is talking about the craving, not the fulfilling. He's not saying, eat of my righteousness and drink of my righteousness right now. That's not what he's saying, although he would agree those things are good to do. He's saying, I want you to hunger for it and thirst for it. Because after you've just ran a marathon, I wouldn't know anything about that, but after you have just ran a marathon, like this guy who did, you guys see that a couple days ago? He broke the world record. One hour, 59 minute marathon. First time ever under two hours. And he ran, I was actually surprised because I was thinking about this sermon. I was surprised he ran into someone's arms to hug them. And I was like, bro, get some water. Are you kidding? But, but when we're thirsty, we run to water. When we're hungry, we run and knock people over on the way to the buffet. That's because the craving produces an action. And what Jesus is saying is, want my righteousness. And then don't just sit around and pray for it. 
He says, I want you to want it so bad that you're willing to go to the prayer room on your knees and you're really willing to go to the streets on your feet and you're willing to go to the neighbor with your mouth and you're willing to go to the enemy with the, the hands of good deeds. I want you to hunger and thirst for it so that you will go after it and find me in the righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a deep, aching desire, a deep, aching desire to see things be made whole. Things in your life, things in your loved one's life, things in your enemy's life, and in the world around you. And finally, the best part about this sermon and the best about um, this passage is that that second sentence there, or right after the comma, it says, for they shall be satisfied. Say satisfied. satisfied. Jesus says that God always satisfies this hunger. And I don't know if you remember or not, since we're doing a sermon series that's over so many repetitive things, I'm trying not to repeat everything every week. But remember, this, all of these phrases, since the Bible was written in Greek and we've translated it to English, there's some stuff happening behind the scenes that we don't see. And one of those things is that what Jesus is saying, his hearers would have heard as, congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they, and only they, will be satisfied. It's in every single beatitude. This understanding that it is only this person who inherits the earth. It is only this person who has the kingdom of heaven. It is only this person who is comforted. And here it is true as well. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because it is them and only them who will be satisfied. God always satisfies. Because he is righteousness and he is justice, it flows from God the Father. So those who come to him hungry and thirsty for those things will always find their fill. Hallelujah. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he reveals himself as the one through whom all will be satisfied. He says in Matthew chapter 26, take and eat. This is my body. We did it last week, our first communion as a church. And then he says, drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is not an accident that Jesus starts this Sermon on the Mount saying, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I will satisfy you. And he ends his time on earth by saying, eat and drink. For in this body and in this blood, you will receive a new covenant. And this new covenant is not temporary. It is eternal. It is everlasting. He says, those who hunger and thirst after me can eat and drink of me, and I will be there forever. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always forgive. I will always love. God always satisfies so as we move from that into next steps, I want us to ask ourselves some questions about these Beatitudes. The first one is this. What strength is God calling you to leverage for others? I want to ask this question because I feel like maybe there's some people here who came in 
to this worship gathering not feeling very strong at all. Maybe you feel weak. To be honest, maybe you've been really into these last few sermons and you're thinking, yeah, I do feel a sense of emptiness. Like I, I feel like I want something, but, but mourning and poverty of spirit was not what I wanted. That was what I needed, but I don't know what to want. So you came in weak and maybe even depressed or downtrodden. What I want you to ask yourself and to ask God is, what is the strength that God has given you to leverage for others? Because this is, this is the thing that hit me the most this whole week uh, studying this sermon. You ready? When God, when Jesus says, blessed, congratulations to the meek, he is inherently implying in the phrase that those who trust in him are strong. You cannot be meek if you are weak. And Jesus does not ask you to do something that you cannot do. You cannot be meek if you are weak. And Jesus is not saying, congratulations, you are, you are meek. Well, as soon as you get strength, you'll be meek. That's not in the text. It's not there. It might be how I would preach it or how I would say it. But that's not how Jesus said it. And thank God that he's the truth and not me, right? Because you guys all know I would have bolted. <laughs> okay, so you, you are strong and you have strength in Jesus Christ. He gives it to you. So the question is, how do you need to leverage that for others? And it might look uh, differently than you think. So just consider that. Second next step is this. Who is God calling you to lift up? Ah, oh, but pastor, it's too hard to lift that person up because I've done it before and they just keep falling down. Yep, I know. It's too hard to lift them up because it takes too long. Be patient. It's too hard to lift them up because all they ever do is ask me for money. I know. God says, I will give you everything you need. Leverage it for others. Push through those hard questions. Push through those impatient moments. And look to Jesus and see that it was hard for him. And he looks at you and says, come with me. Give me that burden. Don't keep trying on your own. Just give it to me. I will walk with you. Who is God calling you to lift up? And lastly, this is the best one because it leads us straight to an opportunity to trust Jesus. What has been satisfying you that God wants to replace with him? Hungering and uh, seriously, right now my, my stomach just growled. I'm hungry. It's time for lunch. I preached a little bit too long. What are you hungry? What are you being satisfied with that's not God? You got that feeling in your gut and you're going after other things. And if you are here today and you have never, you've never walked into a relationship with Jesus. Jesus has been something at church and he's been something at um, in your Bible that you've known about and he's been something for your grandma or your grandpa but you've never actually stepped into a relationship with him yourself I want to invite you today to make this that be, that's the answer to your question 
What does God want to satisfy me with? His name is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. In other words, you can't find lasting satisfaction in anything else other than the Father. We saw that from Scripture, and now we see that Jesus is the only one who can give us satisfaction in the Father, so come to Jesus. All you who are here, who are weary and tired and heavy laden, come to Jesus. I will be back in the back, and Summer will be back there. Miss Jean will be back there. Our prayer team is ready to receive you in prayer if you need to pray about one of these next steps or something else, or if you need to trust Jesus and say, God, I am ready to trust Jesus for salvation. Come, we will be ready to receive you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to be faithful and show up. God, we set up chairs, we set up uh, speakers, and we did all this, and all of this would be so silly and ridiculous if you didn't show up. But God, you have spoken so clearly to my heart, God, as I'm preaching and, and, and shaping me and molding me after you. And I know that you are speaking to others in this room. So we want to pause and say thank you. Thank you for showing up this, this morning, for not leaving us out here high and dry in a room with our own thoughts and words, but you came here. Now we ask that you give us the courage to take the next step in our walk with you, that we would not pause and be still, we would not go backwards, but God, we would recognize this is the time to step forward into faith with you. Pray that just like Abraham, we would stand on the mountain looking out on what you have given to us, and we would be willing to share that with others and to give it to them first. And God, call us to hunger and thirst after you so that we may be satisfied in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.